On the next episode of Healing From Within, author Jan Phillips will join me to talk about her book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. She's here to tell us about her story of how she was a nun in the Catholic Church, and they ended up uh, kicking her out for being herself. However, in being herself, she also found her purpose in life, next on Healing From Within. Hi, I'm Tony Valen. Welcome. Within. Jan, welcome to the show. Thanks. This is a kick to be here on my birthday morning. Oh, that's right. Happy birthday. I, I just, uh, many, many happy birthdays. Thank you so much. So uh, I want to start with my first question, which is usually, yeah, you know, I want to ask you, how and when did this journey of yours start? On this very day of my birth. March 5th, 1949, I come out of the womb, a little pervert is what I thought because I'm raised Catholic, right? Yeah. So the little kid notices it, begins to notice it when I reach puberty and then start having my attractions and lo and behold, I'm attracted to girls. So I knew something was terribly wrong with me because all of my training, the whole culture, all the family, every movie, every TV show back then, there was no, no you know, pro-gay anything. So I absorbed that as one does from the culture at large. So I realized I was, you know, one of the worst sinners on earth and decided to kill myself. And right when I'm in that process of figuring out what's the best way to do it, I practiced writing my suicide notes. And I had entered sixth grade. And what the nun noticed was that here's this really smart kid, really athletic, a great athlete, friendly, you know, a good kid, but she's walking around with her head down. And just no joy, no light is emanating. And so the nun figures something is wrong. And she calls my mother and says, I want to try this new thing on your daughter because she's stuck in the dark somewhere. The new thing was called positive reinforcement. And that was that, was that time that was new in the early 60s. And... What it meant was she just kept affirming me for every little thing I did. Oh, you're so artistic. Help me with the bulletin boards. Oh, you're the best speller in the spelling bee. You always win. Oh, you get the most votes for president in the class, even though girls couldn't be president. So only boys could be president and vice president. And though I got 90% of the votes, I had to choose between secretary and treasurer. That's, those were the times we were living in. So girls had no power. Women had very little power. And this campaign she started worked. 
And one day I woke up and for the first time in my life, I felt like that sick, sad little caterpillar had metamorphosed into this beautiful, vibrant butterfly. That's what it felt like inside me. And on that day, I came out as a leader, not, not as a lesbian, but I came out as a leader and a voice and a advocate for the marginalized because I was a marginalized person. So now the not popular kids like me and the popular kids like me. So that was my winning day. And that was probably in halfway through sixth grade. Right. And I decided to be a nun on that day because nuns must have a magic wand. And I knew she saved my life and that I wanted my I wanted my career to be saving lives of kids in trouble. So that's why I went into the convent. Wow, wonderful. And I uh, know it was uh, Sister Helen Charles is, is the one that uh, you're referring to that helped you through all this? Yes. So you decided to become a nun. What was it about her and how, what type of, what was the impact she made on you that decided, that made you decide that being a nun and being in the Catholic Church was the right choice for you? Well, being in the Catholic Church, there was no thinking about that. You know, they don't teach you how to think, they teach you what to think. So I had no thoughts about being a Catholic, but Sister Helen Charles was a very outspoken, outspoken, big person. She took up a lot of space. She had a lot of opinions, many of them wrong, but she had a lot of opinions. And to tell you the truth, um, somebody told me many years ago that she too was a lesbian, of closeted, of course, but had a very, very tight relationship with another sister. And all I knew is somebody knew how to fix my broken self. And I attached that to the notion that she was a nun. She had a habit. She was a big force. And I could be that because I already knew I didn't want to be a wife. And there was about four choices besides wife for what a girl could be back then. And it went like teacher, nurse, wife, none. So I picked none. Right. Wow. And, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I love the Catholic Church. I love its rituals. I love the music. I love the candles. I love, you know, they install it like a software right into the hardware of our human beings. And it's so smart because it's so multi-sensory. Just when you're young and impressionable and coming up and trusting, beginning to understand and trust the institutions, they install Catholicism with a high regard for our sensuality so that it works. You're penetrated with the most beautiful music in the world. You're saturated with the smell of frankincense, the sight of candles, the altar boys here and there every day, the seven commandments, you know, or the, not the commandments, all the virtues, all the things that we learn about in the catechism were presented to us in a pretty sensual 
way. And that won me over because I'm a very sensual person. Right. And, you know, that's that's the one thing I've never really understood about religion and me. I was raised Roman Catholic and, and of course, I I don't consider myself religious. I do consider myself spiritual, but I've never understood how they can judge someone based on physical and not the whole person and who they really are. And I don't understand how the physical part of someone has to do with anything that is presented to the world, you know, because that's a very intimate, personal thing that stays at home anyway. So do you, would you be able to explain that to me? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think they're more interested in controlling the constituency. So, you know, there was a time in Roman Catholic history when they wanted everyone to be celibate. So marriage was a sin. And, you know, and then a few priests started, like Martin Luther, when he publicly put his 99 theses, posted them on the wall of the cathedral, blaming the church for selling indulgences and 98 other bad things. You know, he was drawing attention to this church is not all that you think it is, and there's corruption within. But an institution, just like anyone else, evolves from its lesser stages to what we would hope be more advanced, more conscious, more, more evolved, like commitments to the human family, but not the Catholic Church, because I feel like it's protecting itself. You know, people love Pope Francis and, you know, I guess what's not to love, I don't pay him any attention, but the church really wants to be, I think, I don't know that they give a lot of thought to this, the cardinals more than the Pope, I think. How do we dominate? How do we make them think you need a mediated experience with divinity? You know, how do we keep them? I mean, what's birth control? What's that kind of, what's, you know, no free, no choice for women? What's, what's that about controlling women, especially, right? And there's a right wing of the Catholic Church, which is very politically conservative and doing a lot of damage to people. And, and you know, when I was doing a workshop for LGBT community in Omaha, Nebraska, they told me that the bishop of the diocese was, wouldn't even listen to them. A group went to the bishop and told them their stories. And at the end of the listening session, he said, I just don't believe you. And so now I called up and I said, I have a teenage you know, nephew who's gay and I really want to lead him towards some support in, within the church. And at the chancery, I called and the woman says, Oh yeah, we, well, we have this conversion therapy program. So that's control. That's trying to control a young kid who's wanting to just come out to be recognized and seen and to be blessed because the journey is hard when you're so different. And the church instead sends him to a conversion therapist. It's controlling the people. It has nothing to do with how Jesus really role modeled behavior for us. 
There's very little in the Catholic Church, except in the social justice movement, that ever feels very akin to what Jesus stood for out there in the meadows and fields. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, it is about control. Unfortunately, because of that control, they also cause a lot of hurt. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I just don't understand that. Um, can you tell us in your own words, the difference between religion, being religious and being spiritual? Yeah, this is easy because it was drummed into my head by a priest who was trying to teach us theology the first year of our, the first year in the convent. We're called postulants. And he comes in and he's got this big idea. He's going to help us create a faith for ourselves. And we're all totally indoctrinated as young Catholic women who are now going to marry Christ, able to accommodate and metabolize that kind of complexity, but not able to understand the distinction, create a living faith for yourself. He was promoting really Paul Tillich's theology of the time, which basically means religion is something you inherit. It's something that's passed down to you. It's a set of books and doctrines and dogma. And you believe it because people tell you this is the one true church. So you believe those things. And all along, the Catholic, like every Catholic family has a bread box sized Bible in the living room on the coffee table. But no one ever opens it because we know we can't, you can't be trusted to read a passage and translate it on your own because it's all mediated by priests. So a priest has to help you figure out, you know, what does Matthew 7, 4 mean? So that was our religion. And nobody up until the age of 18 had ever tried to convince me there was a distinction, a distinction between religion and faith. But Father Gravis said, okay, we're going to put religion on the top shelf and you're not going to revisit it for the whole semester. And what you're going to do is create a faith that sustains you. It sounded heretical and blasphemous to me in, in some ways. And I said, look it, we've memorized the Baltimore Catechism. We're all set. We know every answer to every question. And he was like, that's the problem. So we have to evolve your thinking so that you can have your own original thoughts in the matter. And it was very, very slogging work through the muck of our immaturity that this priest had every day, hammer it home, hammer it home, until finally each of us awakened to the idea, which was basically, what is your ultimate concern? What are you living for? What would never happen in your presence? What are you a stand for? And when he had to keep throwing those questions out at us and one by one, we go, oh, he used the right metaphor today. Now I get what he's after. And kind of like, so for me, what I had to figure out, what am I, what's my ultimate commitment? I went right back to Jesus, the man who, you know, stood with his peers and said anything I can do, you can do, and even more where the light of the world take, 
Good Samaritan, take care of your brothers and sisters when they're in need and don't think there's any difference between you and him, right? We're all one with the father. So drilled it down, drilled it down. And so I went right to Jesus as my example, because, you know, people put him out there as the great exception, but I think of him as the great example. And so when I was framing my ultimate commitments, I said, I'm committed to be a light in the world. I'm committed to justice, to serving the poor, and to being a force for good. And injustice will not thrive anywhere around me. And that was my living faith. So if you were to say to somebody now, religion is a menu, but faith is the meal, that might help them get there. Religion is the score, but faith is the music. You can begin to see those distinctions. Religion is doctrinal, boring, written words. Faith is taking your shit to goodwill, right? It's an action. It's a program for action. So I'm really happy because I got dismissed and thrown out of the Catholic Church because my confessor said he's not going to give me absolution if I don't stop being gay. And, you know, I said to him, that's like asking me to have brown eyes. I can't just not have blue eyes. He goes, well, you don't have to act on it. That's the sin. And I couldn't abide. So I lost the church, but it wasn't even a trauma. I mean, it made me mad, but it wasn't a trauma because I had already created my faith, which sustains me through all things. And it doesn't have anything to do with religion, but because I have been so Catholicized, they've colonized my imagination. So I think in terms of Catholic everything, I always call, if I see three things together, I'll call it a Holy Trinity. I always light candles. Last night we had a feast here for 15 people and there was candles for the Ukraine, an altar for Ukraine. You know, it's very Catholic looking, but I'm totally not, I'm a post-theist. You know, I don't pray to a personal God I pray the air of God in and the God of me out. I breathe prayer. I connect with the invisible realm. And I consider the Holy Trinity to be supreme intelligence, ineffable beauty, and infinite love. And I operate from that position of authority because I made it up. Nobody can say I'm wrong. I'm just saying my opinion. I'm not starting a religion. It's just the way I sustain myself. So I could make celebration and ritual and sacrament from my own personal embodied knowing. Wow. Yeah. So uh, the other question that came into my mind, you know, when when you became a nun, I would assume that you already felt that you were, you know, gay. Do you think on some level of who you were, 
you were trying to fix yourself by being a nun? No, I was certainly trying to deny it. I didn't give it that much thought because it was so complex for me that there was so much hatred of queers. And I thought, how can, how can they hate me? I go to daily mass. I'm in the Legion of Merit. I'm in the Legion of Mary. I do charitable acts of kindness all the time. How could God hate me? So I was really confused by it. So when they give me that barrage of psychological testing, because they're trying to weed out homosexuals. I know what I'm smart enough to know when they say, are you attracted to masculine women to say no? And when the question comes up, are you attracted to feminine women to say no? I'm smart enough to get around their stupid MMPI tests. But through and through, 100% homosexual. And I never wanted not to be that I know of. But on some level, I tried, you know, to get something else to happen. It's troubling when you love girls. Yeah. What did your family think of when you decided to become a nun? What did they have to say? Well, my father was not a Catholic. Oh. So he grumbled a little bit about it. And he just felt like he was missing a, going to miss his daughter. Though he didn't know how to have a relationship with anybody. We probably never said more than four paragraphs a year to each other. He wasn't a talking man. He was a silent monastic type of dairy farmer. You know, that's his roots, dairy farming. You know, he just wasn't a comfortable soul on earth. And never communicated to any groups of people bigger than the pinnacle table, right? He just was very, very shy. So it was just mumbo jumbo to him. Why would I do that? And my mother, I guess she might have been proud, but she wanted to live vicariously through me. So being a nun wasn't going to give her a whole lot of fun and adventure. Hmm. So I think they were glad that I was kicked out. I went back home and lived with them for a summer, as long as I could stand to be there because I was traumatized. Yeah, I was traumatized by that rejection. So I couldn't be at home with all my trauma. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, so tell us, uh, when did the activist in you wake up? What happened and how did it happen? I was taking a photography class and we were learning how to create slideshows. This is before computers. So slideshows using two projectors. It was like prior to PowerPoint. How do you make a multimedia show that has emotional content and impact? And so the show I did, it was right when I was falling in love and entering into the women's feminist movement, the women's community. So, and I'm surrounded by lesbians. And so my show is called Woman to Woman. And it's just like a hundred images of women together. Nothing erotic, no, nobody kissing. No, but obvious, you know, a woman wearing a shirt that says, I love younger women. 
the women at the gay pride parade. So it's not all my mom's in there, my sister, my niece. It's not all lesbians, but we're fairly represented. And the professor, after I ended my show, the guy, the teacher said, all right, everybody take a break. And then he pulled me over and said, that was disgusting. Because he didn't want to have, he goes, you shouldn't have to confront, you don't make the class confront that perversion. And it was just so mean. And then he says, I'm, not, you're, I'm giving you enough. And then I walk out of the class and they were out there having a cigarette break or whatever. And I went up to a few of the students and they just shunned me. It was in the early seventies. And that's when I decided this is not right. And I can't just watch it happen because I'm only one of millions. So I walked over to the guy, the professor of the human sexuality class that I had just taken the semester before. This is a community college. I said, you know how you bring in speakers from the outside to talk about their human experience, like transvestites or cross-dressers or trans people or whatever. He goes, yeah. I said, I'm one and I want to talk to your class because I'm mad. And I want to talk about what it feels like to be treated badly just because you're gay. So he let me talk to the class and that was the, that's the genesis story of a young dyke activist. Wow. Yeah. Still on fire is the title of your book. Uh, you know, the main title that is, in my opinion, that's a very strong uh, title to the book. How did you come up with the title? What inspired you to call it that? Titles are always Pentecostal. They fly in from outside like tongues of fire. So the title is always given freely to you from the muse or Holy Spirit, same thing. The artistic, your artistic gods and goddesses. All I, This was my 11th book. All of my titles just flew into my mind. I knew months before. I even knew what the book was going to be, still on fire. And, well, this one actually went through probably four iterations before it was finally given to me the right title, because first it was Accidental Mystic, then it was How Light Becomes Us, because light, God, turns into matter, and becomes us and and I'm a photographer and I know how light is becoming or not becoming when I'm setting a person up to take a shot so how light becomes us was a title for a while and it went out I had an agent for a while and it went out to 30 publishers and they all didn't accept it the most beautiful rejection letters I've ever gotten in my life but it was not right for their list and so I said, well, I'll change the title. And one became from Novenus to Nirvana, right? I tried everything, make it sexy, make it sassy, make it, and because the complex subject matter has to have a title that has some complexity to it, but none of them worked. And so then I was going to self-publish it. And when I decided to self-publish it, that still on fire came to me 
and that was very close to the time when Unity Books reached out, said, we'll take it. You want your book. And they were happy with the subtitle having queer mystic in it because they're trying to create a market for LGBT unity people, it serves a lot. So I served their needs as they served mine. Mm, wonderful. For people that don't know, can you please explain to us what a mystic is? Yes, a mystic is a person who has an unmediated experience of what feels like divinity to that person. It's a communion with, an interaction with source that needs no rabbi, imam, priest, nun, minister to have happen. It's just wake up in the morning like I always, this morning, it's like I'm sitting exactly like this in my bed, different mittens, but exactly like this, feeling like a satellite dish to mind at large. And this gesture says, I'm taking the call. You know, Emily Dickinson once said, the only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. And that metaphor for me was so powerful because I think of it as divine mind, supreme intelligence, penetrating the cosmos with intelligence, which means information bites are coming our way constantly, day and night, but we can't see them. It's like every once in a while when the sun comes through the window and just away, you see the air fill with all these dust motes. Suddenly the invisible becomes visible. Mystic is someone who knows the interaction with our primary source is constant and unsought. The, and there's no effort. There's no trying. People forever say I'm a seeker. And I go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm a finder. You should figure out how to find it. Because, well, who wants to be a seeker for 55 years? Just find it. Stop saying looking for and start saying, wow, you're beautiful. Thanks for coming to me. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so as you go through your life, uh, you know, going forward, what uh, do you think is your main focus on this physical plane? Uh, I mean, I, you've explained what you're doing, but specifically, what is your focus and what have you dedicated your life to? Connecting the dots between conscious creativity, spiritual intelligence, and social action. So, I am the facilitator who helps people finally get it that we are co-creators of the universe and we here on earth create our lives, 
create our circumstances, not all of them, but at least 50% of what I experience, I co-create. And we're creating the culture. San Diego looks like it looks because I live here and my thumbprint's all around it. So to think of ourselves as conscious creators in consort with the master creator, the primary creator, who perhaps, well, Tara Desharan referred to it like this, the process is circular. It, it, what's going on is either in one stage or the other. It's the divinization of matter and the materialization of the divine. So divinity has materialized in the form of galaxies, supernovas, the tiny planet Earth, the moon. That's all divinity and root to materialization. And we are in the process of matter divinizing itself. At death, we return to the source. But when you say to people, creativity, they'll go, oh, I'm not creative, I can't draw a straight line. I mean, you wanna talk about blasphemy. That's blasphemous. It's totally irresponsible because our families, our communities, our tribes, our children rely on us to be conscious creators. And if we're not conscious, then whatever, we turn things into messes, right? Even Andy Warhol, he, who can understand his work? Why did he do all that? You know, why did Joe Keefe do? It doesn't matter what the person is doing if they're conscious about it. You know, George O'Keefe just added beautiful color to the world, a beautiful love for the Southwest. And I'm not saying it has always to do with art, really, most rarely. That's the rarefied air of creativity. The first conscious level is, all right, I just woke up. I'm going to create a day here. I got 24 hours, just like every other person on my block gets 24 hours. What am I going to make of it? Right? Today's my birthday. I wake up, go, whoa, what am I going to make of my birthday? Well, I'm going to have a great talk with you. <laughs> and then I'm taking my sister and my niece to lunch at a really lovely restaurant on the ocean in Coronado. And tonight I'm going to a drum circle with my niece. And we're both taking our drums and I'm going to be elevated into another milieu of consciousness through the power of women's drumming. So I'm very conscious about what I'm doing. And I know there's hours there unaccounted for. And I'll probably come into my office put on this and work on my audible book and go like this, there you right? Because right. this is my magic toy shop. This is where my fun happens. And for me doing that creative work is my fun. 
Wonderful. So if people say, what'd you do for your birthday? And I said, I worked on my audible, I, you know, edited out burps from my audible files. They would be horrified. And I was, I'm like, it's laborious and it's not exactly exciting, but it gives me great joy to think people who can't read can hear my book. Absolutely. Yeah. The ultimate thing is knowing what are you drawing attention to and how are people understanding what you're about? So if you've got people with macular degeneration and they can't read books, I they can't understand what I'm about. So I have to figure out how can I get those folks the good news? Because if you ask me, you know, I send out a monthly newsletter and I send out every morning, every Sunday morning little messages called bulletins from immortality after Emily Dickinson. Always feels to me like an updated version of Paul to the Corinthians. You know, people will say she's so arrogant. You know, she talks of herself like she's Paul to the Corinthians. And I go, too bad. I'm not saying anything about you. I'm just claiming that if we don't start understanding where the mystics and prophets of these times Ukraine is going to occur in many other countries. Yeah. It's on us because we have let the bosses and the politicians get away with this kind of crap long enough because people are still singing, he's got the whole world in his hand. I boycotted that two years ago because that's part of the problem. Thinking there's somebody up there that's going to take care of our sorry asses. That is not true. We have this whole world in our hands. And that's my message. And that's the good news and the bad news. But I think it's more good than bad. Yeah. Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Jan, thank you so much for joining us for the show. And uh, I really appreciate your time and your energy and the thoughts you shared with us. Thank you so much. Production.